into sports. 20 yards out, Ursa shoot, don't shoot! Oh, oh what a goal for Fabinho! Wow! Then get into the all new OTB Sports app. I think when he apologises to me, I probably will say hello to him, yeah. No. Videos, sports news, live scores, interviews. If Abregas is going to come up to me in the street and give me some of a mouth that he would have given me on a football pitch, what do we get a slap? Plus, exclusive content on the OTB Podcast Network. The biggest names in sports. Ready when you are. Search OTB Sports on your app store and download it now. The OTB Podcast Network. With Green Farm on the go. Snack smart with 100% natural protein-powered chicken bites. Now, I have to say it's real pleasure to welcome our next guest to the show. Her career and her CV is just a bit ridiculous, really. So in no particular order, we're talking 85 professional wins, 85 professional wins, including 20 wins on the LPGA Tour. Uh, The first non-American to top the LPGA Order of Merit, a European Order of Merit winner seven times, which is a record. And how's this for longevity? Her first was in 1985 and her seventh was 21 years later in 06. Played on every Solheim Cup team from 1990 through to 2011. Four major wins as well and she's continued that trend on the Seniors Tour and she is a member of the World Golf Hall of Fame and I'm sure I'm forgetting lots of other things so it is great Dame Laura Davies to have you on the show. How are you doing? Yes good yeah great to be on. Dame Laura is that what they call you when you go to the shops for a pint of milk yeah? No, Lionel, I don't call me anything. Well, just talk to me as normal. <laughs> That's a big honour to get a big deal, I presume. Lovely for you and for the family. Exactly. Lovely for me and the family. A great, great trip to the palace with my mum, stepdad and brother. And uh, Princess Anne was the one that uh, pinned the medal on me. And uh, a day I'll never forget, to be quite honest with you, because like you said, it was, it was, was, uh, it's not just for me. It's for all the hard work my family have put in over the years to get me to where I got to. Uh, Coventry, I read, is where it all started. You left school at 16 and borrowed a thousand quid to go off and play golf. Who let you away with this mad plan? Um, well, my mum and stepdad, they gave me a thousand. I don't think they ever thought that, thought they'd see it again. They thought I'd be uh, doing a normal job pretty soon. Um, but I finished second in my second event at £9,000, paid them back within two weeks. So that's my proudest accomplishment. And so, Gil, the, the, the years preceding that, obviously you'd fallen in love with the game and were good at the game. I mean, were you, were you good at school? Were, were people saying to you, you're mad doing this? Like, was it even a thing in the 80s where many um, girls making a career out of golf at that stage? No, I mean, the, the LET or what is what used to be the WPGA only really started in the mid-70s, late-70s. Um, so when I turned pro in 85, the tour was very young, the money was very small, but I love sport. And at that time, um, it was limited. You know, tennis was good for girls to, to play pro sport. There was no football. I used to love playing football, but there was no leagues about in that stage. So golf was the one that uh, I only started playing when I was 14 years old. So it wasn't I wasn't that long playing when I left school to become a pro. So it was a bit of a pipe dream. But five years later, five uh, winter jobs and lots of amateur tournaments. Uh, 13th of Feb 85, I turned pro. What attracted 14-year-old Laura Davies to golf? Uh, just the fact that you could play with your mates, you could play with other people, but you could also get out there on your own and just uh, try and get better. And there was never a limit to how good you could become because you never master the game. I mean, as good as Tiger is, he probably would still say, I did this wrong, I did that wrong. But you can always get better. And, and it's the fun of practicing that uh, that drove me on. And I used to play 54 holes a day in the summer with my brother and practice in between. There is nothing better than a 54-hole day, is there? 
lovely. Yeah, you can't be a bit tired by that last 18th hole, but uh, yeah, you can't beat it. And, and you're always trying to improve too, because you, your low score, you always think you can beat it. Can you remember how quickly you started shooting better than average scores? Uh, it took a while. I think my first round was 127 up at Guildford Golf Club in Merrow, which is near where I, I live. And I was an eight handicap after about a year and then had a bit of a, a slow patch and then all of a sudden came down to scratch. And by the time I was sort of 17, I was playing to a pretty decent standard on the amateur ranks, not winning much, but uh, playing pretty decent. And to go from eight to scratch, did you get lessons or was it just almost self-taught and spending hours and hours out there figuring the game out yourself almost? Yeah, that was me. I've never had a coach. Uh, I used to go and watch Seve at, at local tournaments and uh, Bernard Langery and woos them. And then me and my brother would be off up the range trying to be one of those, you know, three or four great players at the time. And that was really my coaching, watching them and trying to um, emulate the way they played the game, especially Seve for me. He was the one that really caught my eye as, uh, it, well, he was a genius, wasn't he? Mm. There is something wonderfully addictive. I mean, you're talking to a fellow uh, hacker uh, here, not that you're a hacker. We're not fellow hackers. I'm a hacker. You're not. <laughs> uh, but you're talking to someone who is, is thoroughly in love with the intricacies of the game, of how different lies affect your shot, of different slopes, what it does to you, all the things that you, you play around with on a summer's evening. So, so clearly you had a real aptitude for that. How would you describe your style of golf, your technique? Or were, you, were you handsy? Are you doing things that you wouldn't teach, you know, if you were starting with somebody from scratch? You know, because figuring it all out yourself is, is, is less the done thing these days. Yeah, it was, again, I have to hark back to Seve. I just used to love the way he used to always go for shots. If you're in the trees, try and find a way to the green rather than just chip out. So I'd say I always had a very aggressive, and plus the fact I used to play with my brother and his friends a lot. And obviously being a girl and probably two, three years younger than these guys, I used to be well behind. So I used to throw myself at the ball just so I could get as close as I could to them. Mm. And I think that that developed my game. And I'm, I'm very lucky in the fact that that's the way I started playing because it's it's been part of my game ever since. And and certainly it's, it's you know, you, you could have gone a different path with coaches. Who knows how well I'd have done, but I'm pretty happy the way it went and I'm glad I stuck to it. Did you ever get to tell Sevi about the impact he'd had on you? I had a great time. I played with him in uh, Japan in a uh, TV match. And uh, we were paired together against two really good Japanese players, uh, a man, man and a woman, Ayako Okamoto, and I've forgotten the name of the, the guy. And so I played alongside him, and I think I hold my second shot. He drew, he had a drive off the first, and I hold the second shot. So I, I was very nervous to be playing with my hero. But, but yeah, he, I think I told him many a time how much he meant to me, and, uh, uh, you know, that he's, he's my all-time sporting hero. Right. If we had to pick out a sliding doors uh, moment, I guess US Open 1987 jumps to mind uh, fairly obviously. So again, the context, people just tuning in, we have Dame Laura Davis with us. Turn professional 85, that's kind of a mad thing to do, but you do it at uh, what, 21, 22. And then 1987 US Open, you're 23 years of age. And by your own admission, you kind of go over there, make a few quid. It's your second US Open ever. Your dad lived in America, so he came along. Your brother was there, and, and let's see what happens. And you only go and win the bloody thing, which is just extraordinary. In hindsight, did you not realise how good you were, maybe? Um, well, I'd, I'd had a really good start to my career. I won the money list in 85 and 86. Actually, that's what got me into those first two US Opens. Um, so I knew I could play, but I never thought I could play on that level. It was like, I'm a European tour player, they're LPGA players. But... 
you know, I turned up that week and I was playing well coming into it you know, off, off the European tour, but no, never in my wildest dreams would I ever have thought I was going to win it. And even in the playoff, I was up against two of the greats, two Hall of Famers, Okamoto and uh, Joanne Karner, and somehow managed to even win an 18-hole playoff. So hmm. it was a dream week. And like you said, it was the, the moment where my career took off. I didn't have to go to tour school, which is obviously a big thing for pro golfers, getting through that, the pressure of a tour school. And, uh, yeah, I was out there the very next year. My rookie year was 88. What was life on the LPGA Tour like back then? It was great fun. My brother came over because he caddied for me at the Open I won. And then uh, he came over to caddy for me. He was with me five years. And Trish Johnson by then had her LPGA card, Lotta Neumann. Uh, a few European caddies were already out there. Uh, Mark Fortune caddies for Justin Rose uh, for a long, long time. So we had a nice little European group that we all travelled together. So my memories of early LPGA were, were great. I really enjoyed it. It was fun. It was an adventure, really, because there was no mobile phones. There was no sat-navs. You had a map and a compass and literally <laughs> I got in the rental car, which weren't that great in those days, and off you went to find your way around America. But we had fun. You can't fight with anyone like you can fight with your siblings. So what was it like having brother in the bag and being around each other 24-7? Well, we did. We did well. We had arguments. Uh, Phoenix one year, we had a disagreement. I threw all his clothes over the balcony because we were sharing a room and uh, he came back from the pub really late with the boys and all his gear was on top of the rental car. Um, I, I, I once hit him with the, the grip of a five iron. Again, a, another argument that got out of hand. And after five years, we'd done really well. We'd won, you know, a nice few tournaments and we'd won, I think, two, two majors together. And, uh, he wanted to settle down, so he left, and uh, I then started with a, another caddy. But, yeah, those five years were very good. Yeah, amazing. To win 85 times, it's just incredible. I mean, it's, it's you know, as people know, Tiger was chasing down Sneed's record of 82. So, like, that, that puts into context what you've managed to do here. What have you learned about winning, like the art of winning? I, I, and I'm not talking about the days where you're 10 shots clear and you just coast home, but when you're in the mix in a tournament and you're on the back nine. You've so often come through there and won. Uh, we, what space do you go into in your head, in your soul? What's your approach to those moments? Well, I've always been very much winning, win at all costs. And so in other words, I might blow a few tournaments because I'm being so aggressive and, and I'm not scared to fail. That's the one great thing I think about my career. If I had, a, I, I had a few times when I had nines and tens at the last trying to make an eagle to win tournaments and, uh, you know, you drop back to 30th and you think at the time, oh, was that a great idea? But yes, it was because if you're scared of failing all the time, you'll never, you'll never produce under the pressure that you have to produce under. And I think that's why I won so much because I literally, it's not that I didn't care, but winning was more important than that horrible feeling of, of messing it up. Mm. And so you did manage to produce great moments under pressure. Yes, I mean, I was. I don't know if you can't really learn that. You either got that or you haven't got that. A lot of players are happy to cash a big check, and a lot of other top top players, the ones that go to the very top, tend to want to win um, above everything else. So yeah, you have these moments that uh, you look back on sometimes and think, "How did I do that?" But mm. it's it is only a game, and if you're decent at it, you should be able to produce your best. And Laura, and this is, is a, <laughs> such a weird question or a rude question in a way to ask, but. Uh, like money, how big is the money in the 90s? I had a look, so I sort of already know, but uh, did you? Did it feel big to you? Did money come into your thinking? Like, were you, were you, were, some players go out there and it's just a love of sport and they're not uh, financially motivated. Where did like X hundreds of thousands on, on the bigger days come into your thinking? 
Um, well, the, the, for me, the, the the thought of the money was was it was the foremost. That's what your job is. You know, right. most people want to earn lots of money at their job, and if you're really good at it, so. I had a putt in a skins game once for $270,000. And believe you me, I could not feel my legs. It was an eight-foot birdie putt. And, you know, we were on about the 14th. All the skins had rolled over. And I've never been so nervous in my life. So, yes, the money counts in pro sport. I know a lot of the really elite people that earn crazy money nowadays, in my early days, I had to win to keep going because there wasn't much money about. And and you had to. And and obviously – well, the U.S. Open bought me my first house, for instance, and I won fifty-five thousand in eighty-seven for that. Now the winner gets a million, so it was a lot harder to win lots of money back then. But obviously mm. now, you, you, I don't, I don't understand why you'd be a pro golfer if you weren't worried about the money. It really annoys me sometimes when you hear these people saying, "Oh, it's all about the glory." Well, it's not. A lot of it's about the excitement of what you win on top of being a great winner against mm. uh, and wanting to beat your friends and all the great rivals on tour. Yeah, I mean, the money today obviously is, is, is so much better. I saw uh, Jin Young Ko 2019, it was 2.7 million in prize money. And you had to go down to 15th on the order of merit to uh, somebody who hadn't taken home a million dollars. So like for you from, you know, I presume normal enough uh, family and, and heading off at 16 with, you know, the odds stacked against you. Uh, was there a moment at some point in your career where you thought, my God, financially, I'm, I'm, I'm safe. I'm going to be okay here because that must have been a bit of a worry. Um, yeah, it's probably in the mid-90s when I, I had that year, when I won that Skins game, I won 10 other tournaments around the world. And I was flying back from the Tour Championship in Las Vegas on the on the Sunday night, or Monday probably. And I just for fun worked out how much I'd earned that year. And I must admit at that point, I thought, oh yeah, that's that's been a really good year with sponsorships, bonuses. Mm. So 1996 was the point. I had my very best year. And yeah, I mean, nowadays I'd have been winning, oh, tens of fifteens of millions with, with bonuses and everything else that comes sure. with it. I think that year I, I won about 2.7 million or something. I can't remember the dollars. This is all US dollars. Um, but yeah, in those days, that was, for me, that was a fortune. I ended up buying a bigger house and it was just, yeah, that was the road to to making the off-course side of it really nice too. Yeah, I can imagine. It's just a, a phenomenal thing because we, we, we sometimes don't talk about it enough because you're talking about ordinary people who go on and just... Um, life is, is it just turns out in a way they couldn't have even uh, dreamed of i guess and uh, when it came to your uh, practice you have the reputation in latter years certainly see i don't know how fair this is so so you can correct me but you had a, a you, you were not the podrick harrington obsessive practicer as i understand it well in the early days i practiced a lot i've spent like any normal young pro but as you get older and, and the fact that i'm 57 and still on tour and still enjoying it, it it's because you have to slow down if you don't slow down you'll you'll be done by the time you're 40 so i think i've set the pace pretty well um people say i don't practice now yeah that's true I, if i if i finish a round of golf i'm exhausted i go home whereas the others head to the range and you know, or you don't practice much well mm. you try being 57 girls where well, you know these are 20 year olds now and uh, you, you try it in 37 years and see if you still want to be on tour. If you if you want to go that route of the huge practice, you won't last. I really don't think you will. Yeah. And is your, is your technique fairly forgiving or, you know, some techniques handsy or require lots of timing? I mean, others, it seems like it's their swing is kind of generally at a, at a decent baseline level. Does yours require much fine tuning? Um, not really. It's all about rhythm. And uh, like you said, hands, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a much, a very much a feel player. I, I walk up to a shot and I see the shot and I hit the shot. I don't, 
I don't have to worry about where the club is at the top of the backswing and stuff like that. It's it's just feel. And I think that's another thing that's it's, uh, put me in good stead over the years. I haven't had to worry about ringing up a coach who lives on a different continent from where you're playing that week. Um, I just go back to rhythm, timing, and uh, and that, that seems to have worked. Mm. You must roll your eyes at some of us amateurs checking our hand position in our backswing and there's 20 million other things wrong as well. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's fun. I, I, I play in a lot of programs, obviously. And uh, yeah, it's, it's quite interesting. Some of the amateurs get so worked up and it's, it's a game. It doesn't mean, it does mean a lot because you want to get better and you want to improve, but I do have to chuckle sometimes. Uh, you do one of the coolest things around uh, in, in golf when sometimes you'll, or quite often you'll walk up to the um, tee box and you'll draw, you know, you give the ground a thump and you'll put your ball on whatever little mound you've made and you'll give it a whack with the driver. Um, so what's all this about? I, I, I think the genesis is a, a rough kind of six-month period in the, in the 90s with your driver. So ex- explain all this to us. Yeah, it was the early 90s. I was playing in a tournament in Florida, paired with Nancy Lopez, who's, who was, again, one of my real heroes of the game. And I've hit a tee shot so far right, it was beyond belief. And I thought, oh, that was a shame. And I had did a provisional. This one was a mile out of bounds. Um and I hit another poor one, wasn't out of bounds. And I, and all of a sudden, it just went. I had it in my mind that I couldn't get through the ball. So that lasted for a good six months. And I started using an iron off the tee. And I found on par five, well, my brother pointed out that I'd hit a two iron down the fairway. Um, and then I'd get my driver out and hit it on the green on a par five and reach in two that way around. So he, he kind of said to me, just chuck one on the ground and hit that as your tee shot off a par four or whatever. I think it was Las Vegas again, where we the Tour Championship, where we tried it. And all of a sudden, I, I could hit it, and it was allowing me to stay down through the ball because it was a lot more difficult shot. And that was just off the deck itself. And then gradually, I started building that little mound up. And now the mound can be as big as a big as a normal tee. Um, and it's just stuck with me. And I, I kind of like it. I don't always use that anymore. I, I sometimes use a tee now. Um, but certainly on tighter holes and into the wind holes, I'll always use it off the deck, yeah. It's amazing because, you know, those of us looking on, that that just seems like about the most difficult way to try and hit your driver. Well, that's the whole point. It takes away, I can't be thinking about blazing it 100 yards right because I'm, I'm so worried that I've got to hit perfect contact here. So that was what made me concentrate on the back of the ball more, the fear of, of hitting a genuine duff, which you can do. I mean, I, I actually didn't touch wood. I don't think I ever hit any duffs, but it's uh, it was a way of, of tricking my mind, I think. And I presume driver off the deck, it's it, it, it's not even possible for you to draw that ball. Is that always a low fade kind of a shot? Uh, the easy one's the fade, probably a high a, a high fade. I, I was normally hit, but no, you can draw it. You can draw it off the deck. It's all in the technique. I can right. teach you that one day when I see you. Listen, I'd love, I, I, can you imagine? Get me to draw it off a tee even. I'll take that. So oh, okay. would you, would, so if you're trying to draw one, a draw, um, ball off the deck with your driver would you just feel like you're almost rolling your hands through it is that what you'd focus on yeah i just for a draw i just i just close my stance um and aim at where i want the ball to start obviously with my left foot and then i'll take it back on the inside of my right foot to, on the angle that i've created with the with the, the closed stance hmm. and then as i get through the ball i just feel like my hands are like you say rolling over at impact but you have to be doing this while hitting it on the up because obviously it's a driver off the deck and you need to be hitting it. So it's, you know, you need to, you need to know what you're doing, but the technique's there for everybody. It, it most certainly isn't. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say you could is, do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said it was, the technique is there. That, okay, fair point. Yeah, God, it's outrageous talent. So in that six months in the 90s where you've hit that one so far, OB right 
it spooks you. Uh, that I mean, we've all we've seen Henrik Stenson. We've seen however many players have their wobbles. Be whether you wanted to call it the yips or not. How do you play golf for six months when you're looking OB right? Well, I was very lucky in that my my two iron and a one iron. I used to have a one iron or a two iron in the bag at any given time, and that in those days I, that was long enough to keep me up with the other players because okay. I was a bit longer with my driver, so I was always similar position off the tee. And then, of course, my irons and the rest of my game was fine. It was just that mental block with the driver. So the long irons kept me in it for those, well, it was a good 18 months to two years. And then I got it again in the, in the, just after the 2000, 2003 and four, it came back. So, you know, it's just one of those things. Some people get it with the putter, some people wedges. And for me, it was just the, the driver it was in my mind. And I used to have sleepless nights. And that's what, you, you know, that's this, the way this game gets you. Mm. How has your short game held up as you've aged? Um, not as good. Putting is always, you know, you know, if you ever hear me talking about a tournament, I played Saudi Arabia at the end of last year, played really well tee to green, but the putting just 34, 33 every day, you know, nothing nothing ever seems to go in, but I don't quite know why that is. Chipping's okay. Not as good as it used to be, probably. Not as the, the bog standard up and downs where you miss a green, you know you're going to get up and down when you're at the height of your game they don't go so close as they used to. So I think short game is a little bit uh, less than it used to be. Mm. It seems to be the way, doesn't it? Yeah, I think it's just those nerve ends and uh, you're, you're not carefree so much. You'd, I don't know that I'm trying to prove myself to anybody, but you just don't want to make a fool of yourself. And, and the easiest way to rack a score up is poor short game. Because mm. even that mindset is slightly different from the one you talked about when it came to winning, which is, I don't care, I'm going for this. Yeah, exactly. And that that's why now, you know, if I get in position to win the tournament, uh, it's a lot harder because you're doubting everything when you're young and carefree and just going for every single shot. I still try and play very aggressive golf, but sometimes uh, in certain situations you can feel yourself going a bit. And that that's just, I don't know, That's I guess that's why it's so much harder in sport um, when you get older. When were you at your peak, Laura? Where, is there a signature perf performance that you look back on and say, wow, that was a standard? Um, well, 96 was my biggest year. Probably 93 to 99 was probably the six years when I won most of my tournaments and and was the number one. They didn't have the same world rankings as we used to have back then now. It was a mm. different system, but I was pretty much on the top of it for, for that period of time. And I remember the Du Maurier, which was my second major I won, or maybe my third major and I shot 66 on Sunday to overhaul Lopez and I think Kari Webb might have been up there a young Kari Webb was up there and posted a score that they couldn't get to in really poor weather and I think that was probably the final. I, I always say that's the finest round I ever played and that was 96. Right. Golf has never been exactly ahead of the times when it comes to the issue of gender and, and women in golf. I know in 15, you were one of the first female members at St. Andrews, but then equally there's the newer fields of the world, I guess. Uh, your experience on that front, has that kind of been, been part of your experience in the golfing world? Well, I, I don't particularly like it, but at the end of the day, if they don't want us there, then we don't go there. And, and there's no point trying to flog a dead horse, basically. If it's mm. If, if the, the clubs that want you there, it's great. I mean, St. Andrews, what they did, making me and 12 other, 11 other ladies uh, honorary members back then and um, that sort of thing, I think is nice and it's progressive and, and it's really good to see. But if other places don't want the women to play that, that the way I look at it, that's their loss. So I, I don't get too wrapped up in all that kind of stuff, although I don't, I don't particularly like it, but it doesn't, mm. I don't lose any sleep over it. Have you made use of the St. Andrews membership? 
Well, not yet, because I'm still so busy playing and doing a bit of commentary now. Um, but I'm going to abuse that privilege when I stop playing, I can assure you. I, they'll be fed up with the back teeth. I, I always get all the information about the meetings. Because you're allowed to play as a pro, you can play in all the winter meetings and stuff like that. But I haven't taken advantage yet, but I will be. Uh, can I ask you about 2004 and the ANZ Championship in Sydney? So uh, around this time, uh, several female players were invited to play on uh, the European Tour or the PGA Tour. Annika Sorenstam famously had gone on the PGA Tour. And I think uh, maybe a week or two or three, it was around that time of the year, just to give listeners context, I know you know this. Uh, Michelle Wee, you know, who was only 14, had played at the Sony Open in Hawaii and, and played really well. I think she'd missed the shot by, uh, missed the cut by one shot. She'd beaten 47 male players, including like Adam Scott, you know, so had uh, done really well. And, and you got the invite from the European Tour the first female to play on the men's European tour at the ANZ Championship in Sydney. I was just looking back at some of the the, the quotes at the time. Greg Norman, uh, this is another gimmick. Uh, Monty Monty said, "Where is it all going to end?" And Ernie yells, "We can't on we can't keep on giving them invites." Uh, so it doesn't sound like it was the most welcoming environment. What, what's your memory of that week? Um, well, I was paired with uh, John Van der Velde before he'd had his nightmare at the Open. So he was, uh, I, oh no, wait a minute, maybe he'd already had that anyway. That, that's five years after, point. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So playing with him was great. He was nice. Uh, the, the, the problem was with that invite, I, it was a very late invite and I hadn't practiced all through the winter and I was going to Australia, but that was a tournament that was uh, just before the one. So I hadn't played for about eight weeks because when I, when I finished in December, November, December. I don't really play at all when I'm home. I just put the clubs away. So I turned up there at a men's tournament on a golf course that was so tough and so tight that it probably wasn't the best idea. The only thing going for me was it was the point system. It wasn't a medal tournament. It was five points for an eagle, three for a birdie, whatever, minus one for a bogey and so and so forth. Um, so I turned up, literally no practice, but my memories are, yeah, a lot of people didn't like the fact that I'd taken some guy's spot, but I, I don't know. I don't know what you say. I, I think it's funny. It is a gimmick. There's no question it's a gimmick. Um, whoever said, I've forgotten who quoted, Greg said Norman. it was Greg Norman. He was right. It was a gimmick. I finished second last, I think. I think I beat one person. They yeah. must be really embarrassed about that. Um, but yeah, it was a shame it wasn't in the middle of the year when I'd had some really good golf going into it. That would have been much more fun. I might not have done so badly but you know you you, you you're given options I, I did freddie couples day out in seattle he does a 36 hole stroke play tournament played played off the same tees as them so never say no to anything i mean if people mm. don't like it that's their problem it's not my problem mm. um, how is the standard in female golf in comparison with 20 30 years ago Oh, it's much better now. There's, I mean, there's. When I say it's much better, the players are different now. There's a lot more of them playing of a, of a high standard, whereas before, probably you could you could look at twenty twenty five players every week that you had to beat. The rest were good, but not. They were never going to win really because of the Sheans and the Lopez's and and those really great players. Um, but now they're more stereotyped. They're all kind of the same. Hit it. There's a few different ones that Van Dam hits at a mile and obviously Michelle Wee for a while was a bit different. Lincecum. There are players that are a bit different, but they're younger, stronger and very, very good. But uh, it's uh, it's definitely changed, I'd say, for the better, yeah. Mm. Uh, I presume they're slower now than they were in your day. Well, they can't be much slower, can they? I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. 
I mean, we, we used to play, I think we used to play at a decent pace in the old days when I first got on the, the European tour and then obviously on the LPGA tour. But uh, it's all these coaches with their pre-shot routines and if you lose your thought pattern, back off, do it again. Um, they're allowed to do it by the officials. So if that's their way to play their best golf, then obviously they're not going to stop unless mm. someone stops them. Listening to you describe your more um, intuitive way of playing, you must look at the, the technically-minded players and think, God, it's, it's like robotic. Well, it's like a job, isn't it? I've never considered golf a job. I mean, I've, I've, I've always thought of it as fun and a great way to make a living, but to call it a job, uh, they make it look like a job, some of them. Yeah. Do you still enjoy the game? Do you still enjoy hitting a crisp seven iron and watching it do exactly what you wanted to do as much as ever? Oh, yeah. I wouldn't still be on tour. I mean, I've just, just uh, entered my, my schedule for this season, quite a few tournaments in America, and I think about 12 and... Uh, I can't wait to get back out there because I, I, there's nothing better than hitting good shots in, in uh, under tournament conditions. Mm. It's it's the wonderful thing about the game, isn't it? That you'll be paired with a 20-year-old potentially. Oh, yeah. Norm, normally there's there's me and, yeah, the, I'd say there's a couple of them a little bit older. Inkster, I think's given up now. So she, she's my one guiding light. She was a bit older than me. But, yeah, they're normally anywhere between 18 and 25, most of these. Guys. Oh, uh, uh, Christy Kerr's still playing. She's in a sort of mid-40s. So there's there's some older ones, but it is a young girls' sport now. In the men's game, Laura, obviously the distance debate is alive and well and you're seeing great courses being made redundant increasingly. Is there any great burning issue, maybe slow play aside, in the women's game? Not Certainly not distance, because I've always felt that distance is not rewarded on the LPGA or, or women's golf in general. Par fives are way too long. Um, you see the men hitting midlines into par fives like it's nothing and, and we're thrashing drivers off the deck in there. And so I don't think distance has ever been a real bonus on our tour. Um, mm. Other issues? No, not really. Like you say, slow play. Um, we're getting the media coverage now, which is great, which mm. was always something that was really holding us back. So Mike Wan's done a great job over there in America doing that. Um, so, yeah, I think the women, the future of women's golf is is really good. Yeah, it does seem to be. We we do a golf podcast here as well and every week and so you've got golf community very engaged, enjoying their golf. And I think increasingly, as it's been shown as a matter of course on Sky Sports and not even just the majors, like LPGA events popping up on Sky Sports, you're getting lots of people in touch saying they find the women's game a more enjoyable watch as opposed to watching, you know, Bryson and his chums just blast the ball and then uh, gouge it out with a wedge over and over again. Yeah, I certainly think amateurs can learn a lot more from the girls than the guys because the guys have separated the, at the top, the elite level at the top level of the men's game, especially on the PGA Tour. You can't, you can't as as decent a golfer as I am. I can't relate to to these guys anymore. Bubble was, you know, back when I played with Seve and Curtis Strange and uh, Ian Woosden, people like that. Although I wasn't as good as them or as long as them, I could just about see the, a comparison between our games. But now there's no comparison whatsoever. I, I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I love watching it. I, I, I think watching Bryson hit it 400 yards is just funny. I, I think it's amazing. I couldn't imagine. I mean, a good one for me nowadays is 265, 270. He's 130 past me. I don't understand that. Well, they have to do something about the ball. Well, they should have done it a long time ago. But I, I think there must be a reason they can't do something about it because they would have done it. It must be... I don't know, all the technology and money these manufacturers put into their equipment and they weren't stopped at the outset. I'm assuming that might be a reason. I don't know. Uh, but I think that uh, horse has bolted on that one. It does seem that way. I had a look at a feature you did. It was like at home with Laura Davies and you love Liverpool. 
uh, fanatical uh, Liverpool. You have three TVs which just look like the dream so you can watch uh, lots of sports at once and you love your dogs. That about seemed to capture a very pleasant life away from the course. Is that about right still? That is, yeah. I've got three screens on here at the moment. I've got uh, a dog show and uh, the farmer's uh, market show on. So yeah, there's always three TVs on in my living room and my dog Murphy's laying down here next to me. So that's pretty much my life away from golf. I, I like cooking and take him for a walk once a day and in lockdown used to be more um but yes it's a pretty simple life away from golf but it's fun pre-covid did you get to anfield much yes i'm very lucky my one of my sponsors at uh, links golf clubs that i use he's a a season ticket holder and he very generously uh let me go with him him and his son quite a few times so um and i've i if i can i'll buy an away ticket at um, the Emirates or I want to go to the Tottenham Stadium the new Tottenham Stadium yeah. hopefully when we're allowed back so I, I whenever I can watch Liverpool play I'm there Okay so half past four this Sunday we know where you are Absolutely it'll be on that middle screen <laughs> right there in front of me <laughs> uh, Listen Laura Davies what a pleasure to have you on and hear about your absolutely remarkable career and it really is remarkable uh, thanks so much and have a happy golfing season hopefully in 2021 Thank you very much thanks for having me on The OTB Podcast Network with Green Farm on the go. Snack smart with 100% natural protein-powered chicken bites.